0: You're listening to a Discourse ZA production.
1: I'm Barman Williams, and we're back with the small print. And today, my guest is Ryan Cummings, who works with Signal Risk. Ryan, will you please introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced?
0: Yes, I'm Ryan Cummings. I'm the director of analysis for Africa-focused risk management consultancy uh, Signal Risk.
1: Fantastic. So the reason that we put this show together, the special episode together, is just really to catch people up as to what is going on with South Africa at the moment. I engage with quite a lot of people across the world and there's a huge amount of disinformation and perhaps uncertainty about what the situation really is based on what's unfolded in South Africa over the last really week and a half with all the unrest in KwaZulu-Natal and increasingly across other parts of the country. So can you maybe start off with just a brief summary from your perspective as to what's actually happened? And then we can get into a bit later why it's happened and what comes next.
0: Definitely. Well, I'll try and sum it up as, uh, as concisely as possible. It is quite a complex issue. So we do know that uh, uh, following President Zuma um, handing himself in to authorities um, and you know, this was linked to his failure, um, to essentially pitch up at a commission of inquiry, um, you know that was looking into state capture. Um, you know his breach of um, of, of appearing um, at this commission essentially, uh, you know prompted um, an arrest warrant being issued for him. Um, he turned himself in, and from that, it seemed to be the catalyst. We saw quite a number of calls among you know Zuma's family members, immediate support base. Uh, in KwaZulu-Natal, um, you know, for acts of defiance, um, you know, against uh, the president or the former president's arrest. Um, and this initially, you know, saw, um, you know, the mobilization of some um, Zuma supporters, you know, his homestead in Kandla. You know, from there, uh, you know, in the days that followed, we saw um, outbreaks of social unrest, which again, you know, was kind of... Uh, initially labeled or at least um, promulgated uh, by participants as, as being aimed at calling for the president's release and that he be granted some form of clemency or, or pardon for whatever you know um, infringements or transgressions he's being accused of. But from that point, we, we started to see just this rapid um, evolution in the protest movement. We saw um, quite a bit of um, unrest involving acts of looting, initially targeting key commercial um, centers, specifically retail stores. Um, and that kind of really, really got out of hand where we started to see, you know, more violence, which, you know, at this point seems to be, or seemed to be, you know, coordinated. We saw attacks on uh, uh, water depots, for example, Um, I think there was 117, um, don't quote me on that number, but telecommunication masts that were destroyed during the unrest. There were attempted um, attacks on um, hospitals. There were attempted um, attacks on other key, what one can call strategic um, targets. Um, And it was just really this pervasive, uncontrollable outbreak of violence. But, you know, amid the anarchy, there seemed to be You know, some form of coordination in terms of how this was playing out. And we do know that a lot of the unrest was in some way being egged on, um, you know, by certain individuals within the African National Congress and specifically members of President Zuma's family. Um, And this obviously was a significant cause of concern and just for the overall stability not over, only of KwaZulu-Natal province but also, you know, um, with the unrest spreading to provinces such as Gauteng and, and Pumalanga.
1: Okay, so maybe we can unpack that a little bit. In terms of the difference between the emergent unrest and the what is, is seeming to be increasingly some form of organized elements to this, What sort of proportions are we talking about here? How organized have the events of the last week and a half been? And how much of it is just opportunism and things getting out of hand?
0: I would love to be able to provide a percentile breakdown, you know, of um, how much of the unrest is is more spontaneous and linked to very significant, um, you know, socioeconomic grievances that are harbored by many South Africans. You know, we also place the current wave of unrest, within the context of uh, South Africa's uh, domestic coronavirus outbreak, we're currently in a third wave of infections. This has seen the imposition of more strict regulations, um, you know, which has had a significant impact on the formal and the informal economy. There is significant joblessness. Um, there is economic desperation, and then what has happened, you know, with the stringent lockdown regulations, which was you know, present within the first initial um, strict lockdown was the fact that the state provided some form of economic buffer um, and welfare net, uh, you know, to citizens. You know, this was in the form of, you know, a specific social welfare grant. It was, you know, the process where uh, individuals that were economically impacted through, um, you know, losing employment, losing working hours, that they were able to um, access uh, specific funds. You know, none of that relief, was provided during, um, you know, the second, uh, you know, equally, I guess, um, you know, stringent lockdown measures. So economic desperation was was a key issue, and we do know in South Africa over the course of the lockdown there had been unrest of this nature, um, you know, during the initial imposition of lockdown measures um, that I think were imposed in March uh, 2020 to about. Uh, I think it was July or August, um, where we saw these isolated outbreaks of looting, but which interestingly was widespread. You know, almost every province was affected in some form or the other of retail stores or because stores being targeted. So there was certainly that initial element of um, opportunism that we often see with protests in South Africa, especially where there's mass participation and the potential for these types of gatherings to descend into, um, you know, wider acts of looting, wider acts of criminality. We often see outbreaks of uh, so-called xenophobic violence where informal traders, um, you know, of uh, either African or South Asian um, ancestry are targeted by, um, you know, participants in, in this unrest. So the initial kind of wave of of unrest that we saw, you know, when you have a mass of people together, you have socioeconomic desperation um, and there was always this heightened potential uh, for this to descend into, you know, acts of, of looting and acts of criminality. But usually what we see in these situations is quite swift containment um, by the mm-hmm. state security apparatus. And this was certainly missing during the latest um, wave of unrest and, and, more conspicuous was the fact that it was absent amid a growing threat um, of, of unrest. And I think that, you know, you've got this initial critical mass of people out there, you know, um, a mass gathering that is got strong political undertones you know, degenerating, that is certainly within the baseline kind of, uh, you know, risk profile for gatherings of this nature in South Africa. And then when it reaches that critical point, we see police intervention, we see rapid containment measures being employed. But this wasn't the case in South Africa. This um, unrest in case, KZ, case, KZN was allowed to kind of swell um, without any forms of intervention. There were actually just calls for, you know, greater participation Um, you know, within the unrest. And then from, you know, going from stores to stores, which are generally, you know, facilities that would be targeted in this unrest to start, you know, targeting um, strategic infrastructure. That, I believe, is where we saw um, uh, a definite deviation in what would be ordinary or routine or baseline outbreaks of social unrest in, in South Africa. And Um, I guess at that point, at the point where there was the escalation to, um, you know, strategic infrastructure is the point where one has to question, um, you know, how much of an external force um, was driving or had harnessed the initial grievances of individuals and now directing it either directly, um, you know, to start, you know, targeting certain, um, certain strategic infrastructure but also you know, more indirectly, I guess, uh, with, a, with a lack of a coordinated police response um, you know, from a more grassroots or localized level, because that's essentially what was needed, um, was that the containment needed to come from a more grassroots organic level um, and that national structures generally only come into play um, when the situation you know, spirals out of control beyond that um, uh, initial barrier or initial containment strategy.
1: I was to ask the question in a slightly different way, just to pick up on a little bit of what you were saying over there. Could the situation have got out of hand to the extent that it is, so to get to the state that it was, without the influence of some sort of, whether you want to call it third force, or at the very least the sort of tacit support by omission that we seem to observe coming through from the, the lack of state response coming through, particularly from the police
0: force? I think South Africa, uh, you know, if we have to track the number of protests that are driven by socioeconomic grievances um, within this country. I think at one point, um, around 2016, 2017, if I'm not mistaken, the Institute of Security Studies, um, I think they had um, counted around 12,000 um, of service delivery protests that have taken place in South Africa on an annual basis, and that number had jumped up to 17,000, you know, either in 2017 or 2018. And I think that that figures is is quite indicative of the fact that protests in South Africa is not a unique phenomenon. It's something that happens with a great degree of regularity It often involves, um, you know, some form of uh, debilitation you know, road infrastructure um, in particular, there are certain events where we do see acts of criminality taking place. This is generally limited to low income um, residential areas. As I mentioned, you get the xenophobic component of it where there's this opportunism to target, you know, informal traders um, that are not necessarily of South African citizenry. Um, You know, it has escalated into um, areas, you know, key commercial areas, as I mentioned, this happened during the initial stage of lockdown. But these, this type of unrest was always routinely dealt with, you know, by security forces, and so that's the difference. Escalated. that was the key difference: is that we have a precedent of protests of this nature happening, you know, on several occasions. Yes, fair enough, you know, we, we possibly uh, didn't have the um, political undertones of protests, you know, given the, um, you know, the. Uh, arrest or the, the handing in of himself, um, the remanding of Jacob Zuma, which was a key catalyst in this. But we've also seen other incidents, you know, where there's been a politically charged environment and unrest has occurred. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the 2015 municipal elections in South Africa, the army was deployed in Alexandra because you know there was unhappiness with the voter outcome during that uh, ballot. Um, and this precipitated quite a lot of unrest, which again, you know, saw acts of arson, saw acts of looting, but it was contained quite rapidly by the South African National Defense Forces at this time. So it was a, just a, the, 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 the response was much more organic. And, you know, there was the, the ability to contain the unrest in quite a swift and decisive manner. Whereas what we saw in um, KZN and essentially when it started to spread outside of the province into Gauteng and into parts of Mpumalanga. Um, I think there was a few incidents of unrest in northwest province as well, but certainly not to the scale in Gauteng and Gauteng province. There was just a disconnect in terms of the state's response, but there was also just a kind of, you know, addition to the critical mass of, um, you know, participants in this protest that had already been formed. Um, so I would, I would be very hesitant to believe that if there wasn't an external driving force, um, either tacitly or directly um, in this latest protest movement, that we would have seen it escalate to the scale that it did, um, you know, in, in recent days.
1: So what I'm really hearing you say is that what's most extraordinary about the last week is actually not what happened, but more about what didn't happen. We're seeing a bigger story between the lines than we're actually seeing in acting on the stage that is South Africa. And also what I'm hearing you saying is that we really have all the conditions for a perfect wildfire in our society, everything from poverty to unemployment to huge amounts of young people, not in education or in any sort of training without any sort of hope, vast amounts of economic destruction, a completely oppressive lockdown that has really put many people out of work and out of the ability to even earn or trade. You've got this sort of perfect tinderbox. And what you're saying is that Anyone with any sort of insight into that situation, which would be pretty much all South Africans, would know enough to know that throwing any sort of spark into that sort of environment could create. And I think you've termed it some sort of an insurrection. I think that was the word that you put out on on one of your social media posts recently. Could legitimately expect something like that to happen. But what is different now is you are saying that there's some sort of way that those flames are being fanned, or at least allowed to run more than they would have been under normal circumstances. So when you start talking like that, of course, that does start to raise quite a few eyebrows as to what is really going on there, who are the sort of individuals or the organizations that stand to benefit from such such an insurrection, if you wanna use that word again, who are the players that we should be looking at if we want to connect the dots and to try and make sure this does not happen again in the future.
0: Definitely. So we do know that we're dealing, first and foremost, in South Africa with a a factionalized ruling party. Um, We do know that when President Ramaphosa came to power, um, you know, there was a lot of insinuations by by the president that his tenure was about reform. Um, You know, the so-called new dawn that he promised a lot of South Africans um, you know, in his... made Cape Town very
1: happy. <laughs>
0: yeah, I did. It made many sectors of South Africa quite happy, but many also remained quite skeptical um, that, you know, that degree of, um, of, of reform um, would be achieved given the scale of, um, or the perception, I would call it, of mal governance that we saw, you know, during the regime of uh, President Jacob Zuma. And obviously, with reform, you know, you need to kind of initiate the procedures that lead to those outcomes. Um, And President Ramaphosa, I think, for much of his tenure was under quite a bit of pressure um, that these reforms were coming a little bit too slowly. Uh, But in recent months, you know, we've seen um, the National uh, Prosecution Authority, we've seen um, other investigative and judicial bodies in South Africa starting to kind of, um, you know, really put pressure on individuals that were perceived as being connected to the so-called state capture dynamic which had dominated South Africa's headlines for so long and which had obviously seen quite a um a lot of looting of the public coffers. Um and I think that you know the um the, the commission um for state capture was kind of the pinnacle um you know of the uh of, of Ramaphosa's, uh, attempts I would say um, to push forward with those necessary reforms and, you know, President or former President Suma's um, unwillingness to um, be part of that process um, kind of forced uh, the President's hand to either act against an individual who was not, um, you know, so-called towing the line and, and you know, being responsible um, to, to kind of find the root cause um, of all of the corruption that took place and, you know, the mechanisms that could be put in place to ensure that this doesn't happen again, but also to hold, you know, the individuals that were responsible um, accountable. So we know that, you know, the ANC is literally, you know, almost, I wouldn't say split in half, but there are various factions within the ANC that are either for Ramaphosa's reformist agenda, and there are others that are against the reformist agenda. And those who are tend to be against it are the ones that are perceived or have been accused of being the key beneficiaries um, of state capture. Obviously, all of these issues still need to be presided over by a judiciary um, who could really you know, confirm um, or possibly potentially rebuke the culpability of these individuals. Um, but we do know that there has been a push by, um, by Ramaphosa for accountability. And that meant that certain individuals will need to be held to account, um, you know, for certain crimes that was potentially committed, you know, during um, previous administrations. And this is where South Africa is at the moment, um, is that that same factionism that's playing out within the ANC structures is playing out within the structures of government. Um, in the same way that President Zuma, when he was in power, and which a lot of presidents do, and especially on the African continent, is to ensure that they, um, key institutions, ensure that um, individuals who are aligned to their positions hold, you know, key positions of power. You know, when a new administration comes in, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, all of us would like to uh, surround ourselves with people that we can trust. Um, the people that have been loyal to our um, ambitions or political ambitions. And when we saw a change of guard with the Ramaphosa administration, we obviously saw that uh, the president started removing certain individuals or replacing certain individuals in, in key state institutions with, um, you know, his own loyalists. I mean, I'll bring an example of the South African Revenue Service where a known uh, Zuma loyalist Tomoyani was um, replaced by a uh, Ramaphosa appointee in, in uh, Mr. Kiesbeta. Um Unfortunately, you know, this was not just the point of replacing individuals with, you know, your, your loyalists or your supporters. The, it was also the um, directive and mandate that the individuals were assuming, you know, the, um, the roles that they were assuming out of this mandate of essentially seeking accountability ushering in this new dawn, um, which would be centering on um, looking at uh, so-called, you know, crimes that occurred during um, you know, the Zuma tenure and holding those individuals to book. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when you do have a house divided as the ANC has been, um, you know, you had the factional politics that was playing out within government agencies and while we focus so much on, you know, the power play that happens in the ANC's National Executive Committee, while we focus so much on the power play that takes place in, you know, in cabinet roles and how they are divided amongst, you know, ANC loyalists, which are either, or ANC members, I should say, which are either loyal to Ramaphosa or loyal to Zuma, or even with, you know, state-aligned institutions, we fail to see that when changes are made on top, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of those uh, factional battles are resolved, you know, in the middle to lower tiers of state institutions or even within party branches themselves. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, with the uh, reminding of President Zuma, we saw a pushback from a, a faction that is loyal to him, you know, within the ANC and a state, you know, security agency, you know, hosted in case him, which may potentially still be loyal to him, um, that was unwilling you know, to um, undertake some of the um, initiatives that they otherwise would if such unrest had occurred during these tenure in office. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the, the most um, unconvoluted way, I hope, <laughs> to explain the dynamics of what's currently happening within South Africa, um, you know, and, 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 and how the span the unrest that we witnessed in recent days.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's just talk about the the sort of power game or in play at the moment and, and who holds the cards, because from a sort of outsider's perspective, we did know that most of this unrest took place at the epicenter being KZN, and then it sort of spilled down the highway, down that main arterial route towards Johannesburg, although it seems to have sort of ended there at this point. Did we just get lucky or is that indicative of the power of the, the KZN or the Zuma faction of the ANC and where they have control? Or is this just a precursor to something else? Looking at the playing field from your perspective, someone that analyzes risks and the power dynamics all at play there, who is holding the cards right now and what does where this played out and where it stopped have to say about the various sort of nuclei of control of the two different factions?
0: Absolutely. I think the um, the disposition of, of Ramaphosa, you know, even though he presented the new door narrative um, to many of South Africans was still one of conciliation. He was still trying to achieve, you know, a reformist agenda, but without, you know, risking, you know, that uh, the existing fractures or divisions within the ANC could essentially, you know, end up splitting the organization or, or completely ostracizing, um, you know, members that were loyal to Zuma or to to president, former President Zuma himself, he was very tentative um, with that, knowing that he was essentially in charge of an organization where not all of the members were, were, were necessarily going to tell the line that he was uh, that he was putting out. Um, what we saw in terms of the recent unrest and the initial address that the president made, which was. Um, again, very much focus on conciliation. You know, there was always the echoes of President Madiba, you know, and this focus on working together and almost, you know, pleading with those that were involved in the in the violence to essentially um, to, to, to refrain from doing so. Um, from that, you know, rhetoric, we saw a significant escalation to. The most recent address that was given by the president where he, you know, used terms such as insurrection and insurgency, where he stated um, that there was a direct attempt to destabilize his government. And this was certainly um, the words of of a man who was more bullish in his stance and we even saw this play out in terms of the security deployments that have taken place, with the mobilisation of the South African National Defence Forces, you know, with the deployment of additional, um, you know, police into um, protest hotspots. There's been three arrests already with um, so-called instigators of the recent violence, and I think that all of these developments together suggest that. The developments that we saw in KZN and the unrest that follows President or former President Zuma's remanding into custody really forced Ramaphosa's hand to make a decision from either being a true reformist that needs to, uh, you know, make the difficult decisions and potentially do so um, at the expense of the unity of the ANC as an organisation or whether he's going to continue to play the role of um, conciliator and need not achieve that objectives that, you know, he promised South Africans that we as a country are all expecting. Um, I, I certainly think that he has chosen the former. He has chosen um, to pursue um, accountability um, and to do so potentially at the expense of unity with the ANC, um, within the ANC as an organization. Um, and that this, essentially by the, the show of force that the president has, has been able to express in recent days does suggest that, you know, um, and especially with the unrest dying down, you know, the fact that the deployments of the military has seemingly brought the situation under control. There hasn't been any indication that there's going to be any civil pushback um, from the deployment of, um, you know, or the heavier deployment of, of, of security assets um, across problematic areas. You know, that has almost been accepted um, by the community, we had images this morning from um, uh, you know some broadcasters here in South Africa, where you know members of the police and the army were even reclaiming looted goods, um, you know, from you known flashpoint areas and doing so with minimal resistance. I think the show of force by Ramaphosa, both in terms of security deployments, but also just in terms of rhetoric, mm-hmm. suggests that um, he has seemingly become more decisive in his decision-making. And I think that that certainly gives him the upper hand, you know, having the um, control of state institutions or at least the executive power um, over state institutions and to use them, um, you know, to uh, pursue his reform agenda that the cards currently are uh, firmly in, in his hands. Um, but again, there's a, it's a situation that's still in flux. We have to see who are the other instigators that um, have been cited by the president. You know what their positions are within South Africa's political landscape, and how the potential indictment and possible conviction of these individuals could yet again potentially serve as a catalyst for um, rena- uh, renewed outbreaks of unrest. But I certainly think that South Africa will be better prepared um, at responding to um, to any such developments than we were, um, you know, a week, uh, a week or two ago.
1: Okay, so listening to you speak there, it appears that based over the last couple of days and this, the moves that the president has taken, that he's regaining control over the country, but what is happening with his control over and within his own party? Because that, of course, sets up the seeds for the next rounds of chaos to unfold in our, in our general society. So how does this leave his position within his own party?
0: I think that's all based on the, um, you know, the comments and the statements that are are made that are not in line with what the president um, has stated um, is explicitly, you know, his mandate for South Africa. um, And, you know, the fact that there hasn't been any um, calls within, you know, sections of the ANC or within the ANC's NEC to contradict some of the statements made, you know, which were quite strong, you know, the fact that this was an insurrection, this was an insurgency, this was an attempt to destabilize his government. There hasn't been any body who's been willing, you know, to come out and contradict those statements or to try, and what had often been done previously, insinuate, you know, that certain actions undertaken by the head of state, you know, could impact the unity of of the ANC, which in turn impacts, you know, the um, stability of the South African government. So from that perspective, you know, you know, just looking from the outside in and again, you know, the ANC as an organization is a bit of a labyrinth because, you know, what happens you know, the top structures of the organization doesn't necessarily reflect what the mood is, you know, within local branches um, of, the, of the party. But there certainly hasn't been anyone coming out to contradict the statesman, um, to suggest that Ramaphosa is wrong in his assessment of the situation. Um, You know, uh, we even hear the the police minister speak. You know, he also uses terms such as insurrection and terms such as insurgency. So certainly, you know, within the security cluster and within, you know, the top ranking structures of ANC, everybody at least uh, appears to be on board with the president and is backing his current position. What is happening, though, you know, within the lower structures of the party, specifically in hotspots such as KZN, um, and potentially, you know, parts of of Kauteng Province, you know, that that's very difficult to ascertain unless you are a member and attending, you know, whatever you know, party bureaus um, that may be taking place, um, you know, at these structures. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be difficult to ascertain. But we also know that the the ANC tends to be an organisation where um, the uh, you know the the lower structures do tend the ears as. Um, Many people might find this contentious, but there is discipline within the organisation. Um, you know, maybe not necessarily with the engagement um, in, in the governance of the country, but certainly in terms of the maintenance of the structures within the party. You know, there the is a willingness to tell the line, um, and uh, in, initially, you know, there doesn't seem to be too much pushback uh, to what President Goblerpoza has demanded of the party, demanded of South Africans. Um, and what he's stated the intent has been, um, you know, moving forward with, uh, um, you know, with with this um, attempt at, again, you know, reforming South Africa and holding those accounts who are responsible for, um, you know, polluting state coffers.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I suppose we have to wait to find out at the party conference whether the sort of public-facing display of unity amongst the party is as strong as it appears right now, as strong as what you're saying right now. So maybe we can cast our eyes a little bit further ahead. We've obviously got municipal elections coming up in South Africa. And then of course the ANC has its own internal dynamics and ways of electing various people to various different departments within the organization and within the greater community of South Africa itself. What are some of the things that we should be looking out for? Is a ANC divorce on the cards or is that something that is just being blown out of proportion by political analysts that are, that are hoping for some, some action in the space? Or what do, you, what do you think that we should be looking at in terms of signs and signals of cracks or of signs and signals of new strength coming out of the ANC and its competitors? And here I would be speaking predominantly about the EFF and not about the DA who I think needs to sort of sit this one out.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, you know, the, the talk about factionism within the ANC organisation, is certainly, you know, not, um, not sensationalist in, by, by any means. I think that um, Ramaphosa's actions, as I mentioned, was initially focused on conciliation and keeping the, the party married, you know, the, the, the two factions, or whether there might be multiple factions, there might be a third faction that's neutral, and it's just, you know, kind of watching how all of this plays out. Um, but I think that the steps that he has taken to date um, has shown that he is willing to place, um, you know, the ANC's uh, potential divisions, um, he's is willing to risk that, you know, for um, you know the achievement of his key objectives and his promise to, um, you know, reform South Africa and and reforming South Africa means reforming the ANC as an organisation to a certain extent. So there could potentially be the opportunity for for factionalism, but the municipal elections is always one of of significant interest because that is where, um, you know, there is so much to gain where I mentioned on the grassroots level, you know, and where, um, you know, being an ANC councillor, you know, actually gives you such significant influence and power, you know, because when you Um, are contesting a a ward where the ANC is well represented. I mean, the ANC, to date, if I'm not mistaken, is the only political organization in South Africa that is able to contest every single electoral ward in the country. Um, And obviously, you know, that with that comes, you know, uh, the access to to state resources if you are successful in your electoral contestation. So from, from my perspective, you know, the municipal elections will not many individuals in positions of influence with the ANC individuals that have a very good chance of being elected um, to councillor posts and being able to have the access to um, to state patronage um, as occurs you know in the aftermath of these elections will be very very hesitant to jump ship and compromise um, you know their uh, objectives their needs and also those of their um, communities and their constituents um, in the lead up to, um, in the lead up to the vote. I think that there's going to also be an attempt, as with Dar settles, for Ramaphosa to come out again and, and try and broker you know some degree of, of unity again within the structures of the ANC. Um, as as had a, occurred in the lead up to the 2019 general elections you know where the party kind of again you know rallied around each other um, and tried to become more insular and, and and united in the front that they presented you know to south africa and the electorate i expect that a similar approach and attempt will be made by the president moving forward to the uh, municipal vote and i think that it will potentially hold true. Um, you know, I think there's also going to be a perception, and you you ask the very relevant question in terms of where the power at the moment lies. You know, within um, if, we, if we speak of of ANC factionalism, who holds the upper upper hand. You know, one has to believe that at you know the status quo in South Africa. You know, with the, with the country pacified, with the president coming out really bullish, um, and with South Africans themselves having. Um, you know, also, you know, basically stated our position um, within the unrest. I mean, we've seen unprecedented violence and unprecedented criminality and muting, but we've also seen unprecedented acts of unity and togetherness, you know, individuals coming out to protect their communities, individuals coming out to protect shopping malls. And it's, you know, an issue that almost kind of transcended a lot of the socioeconomic um, barriers that often separates us. You know, that was also kind of a um, position which reinforces, um, you know, our president, you know, reinforces that, you know, he... Um, his words of, of not being willing to for South Africa to kind of descend into a state of anarchy and to not be the victim of an insurrection um, has the public backing, you know. Um, so I think in the lead up to the elections, he will focus on on the position of unity within the ANC again. I think that, you know, with the power being perceived as lying with Ramaphosa, that there won't be many that will break ranks um, you know with the party or with the president knowing that there are significant um, you know economic gains that come from um, being uh, a participant in the municipal elections It is there's not to say that there might be uh, some individuals that will place ideology you know above um, pragmatism in terms of the decisions that they make and in case of you know we could see some um, individuals that are really loyal to uh to President, uh, former President Zuma kind of breaking away from the party, but I'd be very surprised if we saw a significant split and division within the organization at this time.
1: Fantastic. So how do you see the, the EFF playing into this situation? Are they winning from it or are they losing from it? Or how, how have the events of the last week impacted their potential to increase their market share at the ballot box at the elections later this year?
0: I think what the EFF presents to South Africa at this time, um, which I think is very, very conspicuously missing within the ANC, is that the the EFF is a really homogenous organisation. They're not being racked by any divisions. Um, You know, they don't have... Um, control of state institutions to the point where they can necessarily be, um, you know, they 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 similar to to the ANC, not necessarily in terms of an ideological disposition. Um, you know, I think they are a little bit more far left on the spectrum than what the ANC is, but they present a similar, you know, kind of framework, um, you know, for um, their vision for South Africa. But they are able to do so without you know, being culpable in a lot of the corruption that the ANC has been tied with, um, you know, under successive regimes um, in recent years. They're not wrapped by the divisions um, that is, is potentially splitting an ANC electorate who has uh, specific loyalties to um, um, individuals, you know, within the within the party. Um, and I think that that plays a significant role um, and benefits the EFF. You know moving forward, um, you know, into the municipal elections specifically. You know, I, if, if there is any organization that stands to benefit of you know, um, perceptions of instability within the ANC and a potential loss of support within the ANC, it, it would be the EFF, um, and their policy positions as well. I mean, are even more resident now, you know, within a um, you know, kind of peri pandemic situation in South Africa where. Joblessness is, um, you know, at an all-time high. Where there is the public frustration that we've seen played out in in places such as KZN and Gauteng province, and where you know the EFF has in its manifesto, um, you know, various solutions to some of the socioeconomic crises that's affecting you know the majority black poor um, of South Africa. Uh, you know, I think that with all of these um, all of these factors playing together really is to the benefit of the political organization and that they could make some significant gains um, at the polls in the lead up to um, or or during the elections and and thereafter, you know, heading into South Africa's next general elections. I think the key um, kind of wild card at this point is um, whether to see if any individuals within the EFF, uh, you know, are cited as being potential instigators. Um, You know, we've, we've heard the rumors um, how much credibility there are to those. Um, it's very difficult to say, um, you know, but if, if there if are key individuals within the EFF that are going to be lumped alongside, you know, um, the uh, so-called group of individuals that were trying to drive South Africa into a point of um, instability and into a place of anarchy, that that in itself, you know, could be an issue which, you know, uh, maybe limits the the support that the party could otherwise accrue at the municipal vote. Um, But again, you know, this is just based on rumours and murmurings. I don't think there's there's any um, substantiated evidence that has come out that has linked the party or any of its senior leadership as being involved in um, any of the uh, the unrest that was witnessed in South Africa in recent days. So I do think that the EFF sets to be the biggest winners um, of the factionalism within the ANC. As you mentioned, the DA probably needs to sit this one out. Um, They're not speaking to a constituent that would necessarily be um, in two minds about voting for the ANC again. Um, and then, you know, moving, shifting the bug elsewhere because of whatever's happening with the disunity, in the party, the corruption. Um, we also, you know, not even taking into account, you know, the, the perceived handling of public funds that were allocated, you know, to ride out the COVID pandemic. I mean, that's another issue, again, um, that is going to be a major, major factor in determining um, voter behavior in the forthcoming ballot. Um, so the EFF is, is certainly going to be the, the, the party that could be the bene- the biggest beneficiaries of um, you know everything that is negative currently um, uh, associated with the ANC as a political organization.
1: I want to pick up on something that you said there because for most of our conversation today we have been sort of working with the hypothesis that there was some sort of organized element to the insurrection that took place in South Africa. However there have been some commentators that have said that, This is a very convenient insurrection in terms of its timing when it comes to the ANC itself, much like COVID was quite conveniently timed for the ANC when your sort of lockdowns were synchronized the same week that our economy was plunged into junk status. So this whole sort of conflation with the external problem that sort of eclipses the internal problem at just the time that eyes are starting to look very, very closely at a ruling party that has dropped the ball on a lot of the basics, a lot of the very reasons that you were speaking about there that make the EFF an attractive proposition to someone who is living in poverty, that has very little hope, that has no job, that lives in an informal settlement. Anyone that's sort of going to offer a better way forward, because the NC has had, you know, the better part of sort of thirty years to get their, to get their house in order there, and they have not fulfilled on the expectations of their constituents. What credence would you give to the argument that by throwing rhetoric like insurrection around direct from the mouth of the presidency, that it could be being used not really to point fingers at an actual conspiracy, but it could also be being used as a political opportunism to distract and detract away from in-house faults, if you want to put it that way, when it comes to basic governance and corruption and everything else going on in the country.
0: I think it's, uh, there is convenience to it, but I think that the president came out and called, you know, what happened uh, in in recent days in South Africa for for what it is. Um, I think that even by admitting that there was attempts to, you know, destabilize the country from um, you know external forces, and when you say external, you essentially are meaning internal. Um, that that in itself, you know. If, if anything, shifts focus inward to the ANC as an organization and to one that is essentially uh, driven or, 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 you know, facing significant factionalism at this time, um, you know, a house that is fighting with itself. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily going to provide you the political currency um, that you would want, I don't think, for, for every president of a sovereign state um, you know, it's very difficult to come out and say, well, you know what, my government, you know, that I preside over, and specifically when you are, you know, the head of a of, of Africa's hegemon, uh, you know, and trying to attract foreign investment and trying to kind of revive the economy, because I guess, you know, outside of the reformist agenda that Ramaphosa has put forth, you know, the big next big you know, program um, that he is focusing on is obviously this one of economic um, revival, job creation and everything else. You know, it's not going to sound good to a foreign investor, you know, that your government that is, you know, going out and asking for assistance and asking for people, you know, to trust them, you know, within investing money and, and um, you know, kind of being engaged in South Africa on a long-term basis, you know, that your government is, is facing, you know, internal, whether it's external, um, uh, you know, destabilizing forces. Um, so, from that perspective, you know, it could potentially used be used as a means of deflecting and say, well, hey, you know, these these guys on the outside that are trying Apples. to, you know, <laughs> that are trying to, to 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 create anarchy, wreak havoc, um, destabilize our government, but also, you know, from that very point. And, and the way that the unrest played out, you know, it also then asks questions of um, you know, can, can this incumbent administration ride out the challenges that it faces, you know, can, you know, us as an international community, you know, invest in the country um, in, and, and basically back a government that is facing such significant threats, um, you know, to, or existential threats, you know, to its, um, you know, to its, to its existence. Um, so I think that there, there is as much to lose as there was to gain from Ramaphosa coming out and, um, you know, calling using terms such as insurrection and insurgency and destabilizing forces, you know, when you describe um, the motivations for some of the unrest that we saw in South Africa.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying that. It would be essentially sort of drawing attention away from one particular self failing towards another one. So the game theory then just doesn't really check out. I'm glad you clarified that point because that is an argument I've been seeing quite a lot, particularly coming out of the sort of the Cape Town intellectual set, which brings me to the next point that I wanted to discuss with you there. And that is there are a lot of people saying this Last week is a sign that South Africa is on its way to being a failed state and that mm-hmm. it's we, we have essentially two things to sort of wait it out and hope for hope for a sort of a long, slow decline or to cheer on a more accelerationist end to the promise of the, the rainbow nation that the world was also excited about. And there's yeah. obviously a lot of short and there going on around there. How do you respond to such statements from the sort of the gleeful the anarchists that are yes. cheering on perhaps the end of the democratic era of South Africa?
0: Absolutely. Well, I think many people who would reference or use the term of, uh, you know, failed state um, would probably not have been very much exposed to the inner workings of a failed state or what it looks like, um, you know, as a purvey of, of African politics, I, I see how those states look, how they operate or don't operate, um, you know, more precisely. Um, and I think that, um, you know, using one, you know, specific kind of, you know, you. Uh, wave of unrest, you know, a few days of, um, of, of, of chronic instability, which it was, you know, to suggest that South Africa is, you know. Was <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. But I think that many um, pushing the narrative that South Africa is heading towards a uh, failed state status, you know, would probably have felt that way even prior to um, any of the unrest that, we, that we've seen so far. I think the key issue with us is that we've seen um, that our institutions and our branches of government um, still tend to operate independently. And I think one uh, very, very evident characteristic of a failed state is you know, where um, there isn't that independence, you know, where the executive and the judiciary and the legislative branches of government are essentially just bound into and embedded in, in a single person. Um, If anything, you know, the crisis that we saw play out in South Africa was due to the independence um, of our judicial systems, um, you know, and and, and not necessarily under Ramaphosa's administration, but also under Zuma's tenure as well. You know, there were lots and lots of court rulings, as we know, that could otherwise, you know, in a failed state or in a state that was on the um, transition to, to failed state status you know, could have, um, you know, gone in in the favour of the executive to make South Africa's democratisation more regressive than what it currently is. Um, So from that perspective, I still see that state institutions, if anything, have have potentially strengthened, um, you know, since President Ramaphosa has come into power, um, you know, using, using, um, you know, the COVID-19 context, uh, you know and and removing that uh, from the situation and, and and stating that you know a lot of the unrest um, that we've seen take place um, is, is coming in the absence of this you know black swan event that no country was prepared for that has incited unrest in the most developed countries um, across the world um, you know would be would be remiss um, to, you know to to do so and would be very unfair in terms of providing any form of forecast or projection for the trajectory of South Africa moving forward. Um, I think the key issue is, is that we are seeing um, a government that is trying or present, that's trying to reform, um, you know, um, the country uh, that's trying to bring accountability. He's receiving pushback um, and he is pushing back himself. Um, and, uh, you know, that is where in the hope probably lies for South Africa in the sense that we don't have an individual that is necessarily just willing to continue uh, to maintain the status quo where, um, you know, state institutions continue to be degraded, where public funds continue to be misappropriated. Um, but someone who is trying to basically stem the hemorrhage that had been occurring, um, you know, for, for so many years, um, you know, under AEC governance, and um, so, you know, I, I take more positives um, out of the situation that we've seen in recent days. Yes, it's been bad. Yes, it's been significantly um, destabilizing. Um, but again, you know, the country is is operational. Again, we haven't seen any, um, you know, implosion within governance systems. Uh, you know, there isn't any sign that there's going to be an insurrection by the armed forces and the government's going to be overthrown. Um, you know, there, there certainly hasn't been any of those, um, you know, kind of trigger warnings that one would necessarily associate with failed states or states that are in, you know, the, the, the stasis of becoming failed um, present, in, uh, present in South Africa at this time. Um, yes, there is obviously the um, key issues of, of, of socioeconomic grievances, inequality, um, you know, poverty, high levels of, of unemployment, but these were also factors that, That have really been, um, you know, symbolic of uh, the South African state for for several decades, let alone years. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think we need to to reflect on um, how much South Africa has really changed, um, you know, uh, as a country from where it was, you know, come 1994 to where it is today. Um, And we also need to reflect on the strength of our political institutions um, and, and their relative independence, before, you know, we um, we, we kind of use, use those as a yardstick of whether this country is heading to a potential, you know, fragile state or failed state um, status.
1: That's quite a pragmatic response. I think it's probably more measured than what a lot of people have heard about the situation that's going on. Of course, we have to be realistic too about looking ahead and to sort of paraphrase old Lenin, any society is only really three hot meals away from potentially completely unraveling. So from your perspective, as someone who spends their life looking at security risk issues, literally, what are some of the signposts that people should be looking at if we are going to pick up on signs of potential unraveling of the largest state project? So things that Mm -hmm. haven't happened, but things that could happen. What are the sort of things that keep you awake at night? What are the, the instances you are looking for that would change your perspective?
0: I think there's quite a few. I think the first issue is when, um, you know, violence and unrest in South Africa, and and we saw signs of that during the um, recent recent rioting and looting in KZN is where, you know, violence um, takes on a more communal nature. And when you have um, specific, you know, socioeconomic, um, which in South Africa is racialized, uh, you know, demographics, you know, at war with each other. Um, I think that that would be a very, very um, serious sign um, that even if there is state stability, that there is chronic social instability, um, that the state may not necessarily have the capacity to, to quickly contain, um, you know, so any development of more widespread violence, you know, that, that takes on a very specific ethnic um, or even tribalistic form would, would be a worry. Um, the municipal elections might be a litmus test um, for that moving forward. Um, so that's certainly something to keep an eye on. Um, I think the big concern, certainly the, the issue that 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 does keep me up at night is uh, what happens in a administration where, or in a context I should say, where the Ramaphosa administration is 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 removed from power forcibly. And this does not necessarily mean, you know, through the means of a coup d'etat or a social revolution, both of which I think the, the threat is is negligible. Um, but through, you know, political assassinations, um, you know, uh, key members of government, for example, being targeted.
1: And we've seen that in case that in the local region. Absolutely. Level and, and already. i already.
0: just going to mention that, you know, this precedent for that happening at the localised level. You know, we cannot lose sight of the fact that this could happen you know, in the higher echelons of government. And specifically when there is so much at stake at this point in time, I think that an event like that has the potential um, you know, to really, really tear apart the social fabric, um, the, the tenuous social fabric um, of South African society, um, and which you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say would necessarily uh, push us into failed state status, but certainly would you know shift us towards that uh, trajectory, uh, you know, moving forward. So that is certainly something that that worries me. Um, I think you know, more over the medium and the long term, is at some point. Um, Current levels of inequality, current levels of poverty, current levels of unemployment is unsustainable. Um, Something needs to be done to address what is otherwise a ticking time bomb because, you know, we we are potentially, you know, a few years or, or decades away, you know, where a social revolution could become a reality in this country. Um, you know, where there are strong perceptions that there is a government that is essentially looting state coffers and that the poor are getting poorer, the rich are getting richer, um, and, you know, that there is no immediate change um, to to the status quo that's going to happen, at least not through the ballot box. Um, You know, elections only come around every five years. Um, You know, obviously, municipal elections with a a slight uh, higher frequency. But the perception would be that, you know, pluralist, democratic, uh, democratic processes, I should say, if they're not going to yield um, any changes, um, you know, for for the ordinary South African, that there needs to be, you know, other measures um, undertaken to do so, and this will more than likely be unconstitutional in, in nature. Um, so that is certainly, you know, over the medium term, something to 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 be more concerned about. So I think uh, near term is obviously the um, the potential for for political violence targeting, you know, the higher echelons of government and potentially the president himself. You know, the um, you know the medium term is perhaps you know just looking at the um, you know at the the issue of unemployment, um, the issue of um, you know poverty and uh, interventionary uh, measures undertaken by the government to to protect that. And then I think maybe you know if we're looking over the longer term, and and that's probably leading up to um, the the next elections is, uh, you know, what happens in 2022, um, you know, when the ANC has to uh, elect a new, um, or not necessarily a new, but just elect a presidential candidate for the 2024 general elections. Um, You know, there's, I guess, uh, I might be biased in my opinion, but there's there's a lot of hope um, in, in President Ramaphosa and his vision for South Africa. Um, but if, you know, there are any um, factors leading up to Ramaphosa not getting the, the baton uh, for the second time and, you know, an individual that might be, the you know, having uh, a position from an ideological and political perspective that's the antithesis to the incumbent, uh, that could certainly be something that would be keeping, be keeping me up at night um, in terms of just policy moving forward, and then also our ability to kind of attract the degree of economic investment that we need to um, reform and recalibrate this country of ours.
1: That's a very good comment over there, especially with regards to our current president, because whatever you think of him, whatever your political leanings are, realistically, what alternative does South Africa have right now? So, <laughs> you know, that's that's the the sort of that. The hand of cards that we've been dealt we've got to make the best of it and as you really have highlighted at the moment things can go right but as we have seen over the course of the last week that tinder is so so dry and it will only take a small spark to set things off again so however we proceed we have to proceed with caution and hopefully we will make the sort of decisions that But the naysayers to shame and the South Africa is able to do what South Africa does best, like the bumblebee that's not supposed to fly. We've been flying since the 1960s and we still have somehow managed to make it through to today. So I do do tend to err on the side of optimism for South Africa, for better or for worse, just based on the sort of people that we are and the sort of challenges that we've overcome, many of which would have flattened many other societies who are just don't have that sort of inbuilt level of resilience. Anyway, that's my two cents. I have definitely taken up quite a lot of your time today. So I want to give you the opportunity to close off with any parting thoughts you have to clarify anything, any of the points you've made or to drive anything else home. So please do take that opportunity. And then if you could let people know where to find you, if they would like to continue this conversation or to engage with your professional work.
0: Absolutely. So I think uh, I'll just keep it short in terms of summing up my thoughts, uh, just reiterating your position, Bobbin, that um, I think there is reason to be optimistic. Um, we are a very resilient society. Um, I think that even in the height of the unrest and the instability and the vulnerability that we saw in recent days uh, play out in South Africa, you know, the counterweight to, to that was our ability to unify. Um, you know, to, to stand together um, and, you know, even certain sectors of society that, you know, we, we often don't necessarily have very many positive things to say about, you know, the taxi organizations, which, you know, currently in the Western Cape where I'm speaking from, I grew with each other out in KZN and out in province, You province. Know, these were the um, organizations that, that came together and, you know, essentially provided leadership um, you know in instances where it was um, lacking and I think that that does speak to the resilience um, you know of the South African spirit. Um, I think that we've survived worse than what we're currently going through um, and that you know with um, the correct leadership um, at the helm that we all we'll will be able to overcome this. We will come out stronger um, and you know we just need to, to, to work together essentially um, but also to to be engaged, I think that's uh, the main issue. and I speak as a middle class South African is that often enough, um, we haven't felt that you know engaging in democratic processes in South Africa necessarily has an important um, influence on our immediate future, you know um, Politics has not necessarily been, a, um, a process uh, for, for many of us um, that immediately influences our lives and I think that we we've, we've, we've reached that threshold where everybody needs to be politically engaged, everybody needs to get out there, you know um, put, uh, put their, their, their mark on a ballot paper and go out there and vote um, you know for whatever you believe in for whatever political organization you believe in if you want to start your own uh, organization, whether it be a purple cow or a blue um, ostrich, you know, go for it. Um, you know, the, the wider the political spectrum we have, the more choices we have, um, and the more we uh, feel that our democracy is inclusive, because that is what it needs to be, um, and that is what it needs to to, to to be for for it to work for us. Um, so, you know, that that is my concluding thoughts. I'm, I'm still so optimistic that we. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that we've, we've ridden this wave completely yet, um, but I think that things could seriously be worse than what it currently is. Um, and that brings me a little bit of hope. Um, and yeah, you know, let's just uh, let's just continue working together. Um, in terms of where you can find us, our company is called Signal Risk. Um, you can check out our website, which is www.signalrisk.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We'll be um, most active, um, which is at uh, SignalRisk. Uh, we are also uh, can be found on LinkedIn. Um, and you can follow me uh, if you want ramblings on South African politics, African politics, and a lot on uh, English football and other Arcadia at at P-O-L, Paul underscore sec, S-E-C underscore analyst. And you've been warned. You'll probably unfollow me within a day, but <laughs> if you are interested for on, on, you know, some thoughts on the African continent and South african politics, check it out. And um, yeah, give me a follow and uh, I might just follow back.
1: Thank you so much, Ryan. You've been so generous with your insights and definitely follow him. He's very entertaining on Twitter. I'm brian Williams. Goodbye.